1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Now, the latest on the Millennium Bug with Peter and Philippa.
2: Indeed, and Gabby, we mustn't forget that with all this excitement going on, there are some very, very worried people all over the world. The Millennium Bug has its struggle, hasn't it? Gary Neville, Cole in space, brings it down. It's Andy Cole! Oh, it's a great goal! It's beginning to look like Manchester United's championship now. He was onside, the control was
3: excellent, and he was so cool. And these were the minutes during which the skies darkened
2: over Manchester, accelerated by a time-lapse camera. This was how the majority of people witnessed the eclipse, its effect nonetheless impressive for being gradual. The sun will not disappear like this again for more than 90 years.
3: Many, many people will be wishing them well. Actors, people don't want them
0: to win. In the country, there was a poll in percent voted do want the win on Wednesday
3: night. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller. Jonathan Wilson is here, and with us is commentator Clive Tilsley. Clive, how are you?
2: I'm as well as anybody could possibly be in the circumstances, mildly embarrassed to be as well as we are.
3: (laughs) Well, Clive, it's a a pleasure to have you on the the pod. Um, Today, I am delighted to say that we are going back to the 1999 European Champions League final. Where else? Manchester United 2, Bayern Munich 1. Clive, why have you chosen this game?
2: Well... I think that of all the matches that I've been privileged to cover in my 437 years in television, it's probably the worst. Uh, So (laughs) certainly for 80 minutes or so, it was not an exceptional football match. Um, But as stories go in football terms, it was extraordinary. And Probably more significantly, I hope this doesn't sound too vain, but it—you've asked me to mm. to to do to give you my version of this podcast—and it was far and away the most important game of my career. Um, the late great Brian Moore retired after the nineteen ninety-eight World Cup final, leaving me his understudy to become ITV's senior football commentator. And um, this match was the the climax of an extraordinary first season. In that role, and um, without being too dramatic, I wouldn't be talking to you now if I'd messed it up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Jonathan, it was quite a, quite the ending to, to the final with a very exciting Manchester United side. I mean, what were your immediate memories that leap to mind?
4: Well, this this was the last the last Champions League final before I became a journalist. So oh I, was doing, I was doing bits and bobs of freelance stuff, but I was I was still a student. I was doing my masters up at Durham, and the college I was in was uh, the graduate society, which is uh, was up at Howland's Farm. So it's on the top of a hill, and the thing I remember was sitting in the TV mm-hmm. room there. We, we were with a load of other people, a few beers, watching the game, and something. Our feed must have been slightly slower than the next college down the hill, because we <laughs> heard this roar about fifteen seconds. And we were sort of like, what, what's happened? And
3: then... Uh, 15 seconds is a lot as well.
4: Yeah, and then the Equaliser goes in. And then we hear another roll. Well, like, oh, it, it can't be another one. Yeah. No, it, it was another one. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I remember. And it's... I don't know. You you watch a game differently as a journalist um, yeah. to how you watch it as... And I use the word fan loosely. I, yeah, I'm not a United fan. Um, but, you know, we wanted the English team to win. And especially when there's a group of you together... Uh, you, you are fairly partisan, and especially you know against Bayern, against the German team, mm-hmm. it, it was it was a great, you know, it was just a great night, and, and and the last great night really of watching football as a as a layperson. Mm. Claude, I think actually you,
2: Jonathan, yep. you've
4: you've you've
2: what you've just said in many ways was the kind of dilemma for me on the night because certainly for much of. Of my life, my football watching life, even with club football and even with the tribal nature of club football, I think you're right. I think there was always a feeling that it's the English club, you know, it's oh. it, it's as much our boys almost as the, the the national team playing for our league in Europe. But I was very conscious that by then, we'd um, you know we'd kind of lost our innocence a little bit. Uh, I, I guess you know without being too grave and grim about it Heisel and Hillsborough and Bradford had um, enabled us to lose our innocence and I think the world was changing and I'm as convinced as I can be that 50% of the people who were watching that night on UK TV and the audience was 20 odd million wanted Bayern Munich to win you know I think anyone but United had arrived in our psyche by them and indeed anyone but Liverpool and anyone but Leeds or anyone but you know a, a rival of your team and so walking back to the hotel after the match I, I was kind of asking myself why whether i might have over-egged it a little bit and um fortunately we had sky news in the in the room at the hotel and there was a feeling almost of, of england winning the european Championships. it it almost had that that sense about it and of course English football had gone so long, it had gone through so much without a European Cup to parade. It was the Germans, and I think the shell shocked looks on the faces of the Bayern fans is one of the most indelible images of the evening of Matthias sitting, um, you know, having gone off to almost to wash his hands to get ready to collect the trophy. Oh. Sitting. And we'd just never seen this from a major German team. We'd never seen them beaten, ambushed in this kind of way. And I do believe that for one night and for one night only, even the most ardent city or Liverpool or Leeds or West Ham fan almost forgave Manchester United and thought, hey, on you go. The way you've done it, you know, the dramatic way that you've done it from the FA Cup semi-final replay onwards, uh, hats off to you, enjoy it. We'll give you dog's abuse when you come to our place next season. But um you know, fair play to you. And and I think I think it was I think the feeling that you had, Jonathan, as a Durham student, was actually shared by a lot of football fans around the country.
4: Well I yeah, I, I think agree. That that's a key point that you know knowing this team had won the you know mm-hmm. the major European competition, the European Cup of the Champions League, since nineteen eighty four.
1: Mm. So
4: for a whole generation we we hadn't seen it. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so I you know I think it was a very different mood, and of course then there were players in that Bayern side who we'd seen you know Matthias's case who played for West Germany and then Germany when they would beaten England in, in two semi finals, uh, yeah. yeah, Effenberg had been there in, in ninety six, so yeah there the, the were there were players there who who had hurt us in big games, and this was them being hurt in a big game.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I, I remember it's sort of similar to what you're saying that perhaps ardent say Liverpool fans and, and the you know Manchester United rivals did sort of think you know because Manchester United had been knocking on the door for a while in the Champions League and after the, the ban for English clubs had been lifted you know English clubs hadn't done so well and Manchester United I remember they were getting quarterfinals and there was even sort of semi-final but they just couldn't quite get get over the line into the final. And this season that we're talking about, there was so good to watch that year in that competition. Well just in general, but in that competition in particular. And and I remember well after the final actually going into school and there were it did feel like England had won something, actually, that all the, the all the neutrals are all those who supported other teams. There was a sort of a slight euphoric feeling and it was either people were really happy to see an English team do it, or as you say, Clive, one or two fans of of other clubs who wouldn't, anyone but Manchester United, there was a feeling of, all right, fair play. We've laughed at them for going out in other moments of the tournament and so on, but you couldn't begrudge them this. um, To be the first English side, as you say, Jonathan, since 1984. And also, I mean, it was the first time the treble had been won... Since PSV Eindhoven in 1988, and and there wouldn't be another. Well, it's also again. the
4: way it was won.
3: You know, it yeah. they didn't
4: win yeah, it by by being much richer than everybody else and battering everybody three or four nil. They won it with this series of ridiculous comebacks. Yeah. So it, it almost you know it almost felt like a like a film or something. It was it was so ridiculous. Yeah. And you know the, the I remember watching the was it the fourth round of the FA Cup when they beat Liverpool. I remember watching that in student union, 2-1. and sort of. With yeah, the wandle down was sort of, I don't Mm. know, five minutes, ten minutes to go, and kind of still thinking they would win it. And they, yeah, they did. And then surely they can't do it against a German team. Well, no, they can. And Turin,
2: of course, um, you know, they were, they, you know, they needed snookers 12 minutes into the uh, second leg of the semi final in Turin. And then Roy Keane gets the yellow card. Two minutes later, two minutes after finding out that he will not be playing in the final, irrespective of what happened, he heads the goal, which resurrects their their chances that night. So, and even then the first leg, Gig scored in the ninety third minute in a game which Juventus yeah, dominated fine. at Old Trafford. So, <laughs> okay. so this, and you know, I get reminded of some of the. Um, inane things that I screamed after the goals and the final whistle and everything that night but if if, if I'm pleased or proud or whatever the word if I'm proud of anything it's the silences after the two goals, the thinking time that I bought myself but actually that sense of destiny and I think I said after Sheringham had scored, name on the trophy and Mm. there was this gathering feeling of something, listen I'm not a religious person but something greater Taking over here, and the greatest post-match football interview ever, ever given by Sir Alec Ferguson to Carrie Newborn immediately after. Three words we all we all know what they were. Football, <laughs> bloody hell, and yeah, and yeah, all yeah. he was saying really was, don't ask me. I have no idea how we've won that football match. <laughs> you know, Bayern Munich have hit the woodwork twice in the in the last ten minutes. Uh, Manchester United hadn't looked like scoring until the last. Five or six minutes, mm. and not only have they scored, but they've scored twice and 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 completed the treble in in the style in which Absolutely. they had won the title in the final match. Uh, the FA Cup final itself was something of a non-event, but the FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal and and the victory over Liverpool that Jonathan alludes to uh, were extraordinary, fateful, you know, destiny.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the first well,
4: match of, the, of destiny.
3: Oh, sorry,
4: I think this point about destiny, I, I, you know. We we've mentioned it before on this podcast, but I, I you know I don't think it exists except when enough people start to believe it exists, then it does still have a have an impact. And actually, you saw this, and you saw this definitely that season that United, if they were level, if they were one goal down with ten minutes to go, they still thought they'd win. And when Roy Keane became Sunderland manager, somehow he brought that to Sunderland, and Sunderland again and again that season when they got promoted under Keane would find themselves. One nil down or two on down, with ten minutes to go, and would win. And yeah, that last month of the season we did it at Southampton, we did it against Burnley, vital wins. And it was something that Keane had brought from that side, that this sort of and it works both ways, right? If the United had that belief that they could get the late goals And the opposition also had the belief that United could get the late goals. And so they get nervous... But but they didn't that night.
2: Yeah. But they didn't that night because um, Mateus came off ready to go and get the trophy. Basler, who'd, who'd scored the only goal of the game... Came off lauding it. He came off in the 89th minute. Buzzler. I mean, how must he must have felt three minutes later? Uh, but he was he was um, orchestrate conducting the the crowd. And I mean, they really I, they were triumphal. And um, you know, I committed the biggest cardinal sin of commentating that night when I said and Saul Sharon's won it. I called the winner across the line before the line had arrived. But at least I only did it 30 seconds before the line arrived. By minutes, we're doing right. it 10 minutes before the line had arrived.
4: And the weird well, we'll, thing is, they did think. it in 2012 as well. You know, when, when Muller came off against Chelsea, yeah. very, very similar thing.
3: Yep. I, they, I, well, to, to quote another commentator, forgive me, Clive, it's, they will not learn, Jonathan. Is, <laughs> uh, but uh, but but I, I like that goes just, before we get on to the actual game in, in the second half of this podcast, even though obviously we've just regaled some wonderful memories there i mean I, the first game of manchester united's champions league campaign uh, that year was a 3-3 home draw against barcelona and they would of course draw 3-0 with barcelona again and i i can remember any time manchester united played in europe that season okay i understand they hammered bromby twice in the group as well it was kind of like oh manchester united are playing this is going to be good you have to sit down and watch this because Straight from the off, that 3-3 home draw against Barcelona where Beckham scored one of the best free kicks I've ever seen. It was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And, and you you saw this straight from the off, Clive. Was Did you feel at the start of this campaign, did you think this, this could be a different one? Because as I say, Manchester United had gone close. They'd got to quarterfinals and semifinals previously. But, but did you think this, this year, when was it, did you think, other than... The last couple of minutes of the final. <laughs> Did you think there was a different, <laughs> different feeling uh, to their campaign this time
2: I, I mean, they scraped through into the knockout phase. It was a, it was mm. a very uh, com- complicated, convoluted um, qualification process because they were in a group with Bayern Munich and and uh, uh, Barcelona. Mm. Uh, that both of the games against Barcelona ended three three, and there were sensational games, um, mm. but th- they. They had one eye on another match on the kind of. Uh, I hate I hate this Match Day Five, Match Day Six. I can't give anything less romantic for the old European Cup <laughs> than for it to But but that on the sixth the sixth game they played, and I think they'd start, didn't they? Start in a qualifying round. I've got a funny feeling they might have done. But anyway, um, I, I suppose I'm coming around to saying no. I, I didn't really pick up the sense of it until the turn of the year. Um, and, uh, yeah, that the, the FA Cup run of the nature, everything that we've just we've just talked mm-hmm. about. And, you know, talking about fate, that, uh, Jonathan's story about the delayed roars at, at Durham University bring back a story which may be apocryphal, which is a, a long word for saying maybe a total lie, but it, it was told many times afterwards that Lennart Johansson, who's the president of UEFA, who's sat in the lofty VIP area, at the new Camp was summoned a minute before the final whistle to to get into a lift to an elevator and go down to it's below ground level at, um, at Barcelona to present the trophy. W- Sheringham scored while he was in the lift. When the door was opened, he was told that. Uh, he could go back to his seat because Manchester United equalised and it was going to extra time and everybody knows what's coming here. He got back up to the VIP, the doors opened again. Said, I'm sorry, Mr Johansson, that Manchester United scored again. You can now go <laughs> back. And so it's suggested that the president of UEFA saw neither
3: of the goals. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've heard that story, I have to say.
1: <laughs> uh, United did uh, play George Best, that season,
3: by the way. They, they, they played
1: woodshipping. Uh, they didn't,
4: no. No, they, yeah, they did. I they played, played Woodchip. Oh, they did, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah they yeah. played witch And, and
2: George, best missed, George Best missed both the goals, too. He was doing some corporate gig and he had to go round the stadium in order to, from it, the seat he was in. So uh, he was ushered round and they scored both goals while um, arguably Manchester United's greatest player of all time was walking around the stadium.
4: <laughs> but I mean, the uh, odd yeah, thing well, about that group as well is is that you know the top two weren't guaranteed to qualify. The top one went through. No. And then the two yeah. best of the six second place teams. So they actually owned So they were dependent
2: upon another match. Yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Real Madrid were the best second place team with twelve yep. points. Then United with ten, and then there was mm. four teams: Galatasaray, Benfica, Lens and Croatia Zagreb, all mm. had eight. So it was a very, it was a very tight run thing. But I, right. I think those two games against Barcelona, because we'd seen Barcelona sort of rip United apart in in '94, yeah. the fact that United could could stand toe to toe with them. And I think, you know I, you know, I think, Marcus, you're right to, to, to highlight Beckham in the first game. But the game in Barcelona, York and Cole were so good oh, yeah. that night. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Unbelievable. And I think there was a sense then of, you know, this, this is better than anything we've seen before. Yes. And, you know, United had gone so close, you know, they'd, they'd basically the away goal had stiffed them against Dortmund, against Monaco the previous two seasons. Okay. So I think we knew they weren't that far off. And then mm. when you saw York and Cole being, being that good with that midfield behind them... I, you know, I, I mean, maybe there's hindsight talking, but I think there was a sense of this probably is a United that's a little bit better than what we've been seeing for the last decade.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think yeah, they that, were wonderful it, it, in Turin
2: too, those two. They played magnificently in Turin in the semi-final. And actually, um, I, I, I hadn't caused to, to look back at that game uh, again quite recently. And everything that we sang about the style that Manchester United brought to to every competition they played in that season... They really went for it in Turin. I mean, they didn't fall 2-0 down because they were going for it. The second goal was a bit fluky from Inzaghi. took a big deflection. But having drawn the first leg 1-1 and been lucky, really, to suddenly they were 2 down eleven, twelve 11-12 minutes in Turin. But they were already creating chances in that match. And they created chances all the way through that game. Uh, I mean, Juve had one or two, but it wasn't the the kind of game that you're used to seeing in in the common alley, you know, in in a European Cup or a Champions League game where Juve were able to keep a lid on. They could not keep a lid on Kold and York all night long. And um, the combination between the pair of them, and then you look elsewhere in the team remember that Paul Scholes was only really a substitute he came on as a substitute the night that he got the yellow card in uh, in Turin and he was ruled out of the final mm. so they, they had okay their options were reduced by the absence of both Keane and Scholes in the final and actually probably in retrospect Sir Alec Felsen didn't quite get that right in, in terms of his his team selection it wasn't until Sheringham came on midway through the second half and Kings was released to the left and so on but it, it was a question of just taking the chains off that team and then backing them to outscore the opponents, and that's what they did time and time again.
4: Yeah, I think that performance in Turin was was the best performance they put in in that campaign, and mm. one of the great English club performances in Europe. I mean, I, I did that game for my book on United. You know, I, I chose ten ten matches. I, I took the game in Turin, and I, I'd sort of misremembered it until I watched it again and you're absolutely right they sort of fall 2 nil behind almost without anything happening it wasn't that they got outplayed for half an hour and were 2-0 down just two goals went in and they actually dominated sort of 75 minutes of that match
3: mm.
4: yeah, yeah I
2: mean, and, and you look back at the you know David Beckham had a wonderful game that night I mean Yaps Tam had a marvellous season Pete, I've been asked who was the best player in that Manchester United team and I I think, personally, the only player in that Manchester United team who, for me, was indisputably the best player in his position in the world at the time was the goalkeeper. You know, so they had, I think, the best goalkeeper in the world. They had the best captain in the world. He might, you could argue, he would be in the top five or ten midfield players in Europe, which, you know, you can think of the company that he was keeping in that era uh, but but you know Roy had a huge influence on everybody around him he was one of the most effective players that the game's ever seen and as you say added to Beckham and Giggs suddenly um, was this combination up front which was just brimful of goals
3: and of course Dwight York was top scorer along with uh, I think Shevchenko in, in the competition alright gentlemen let's have a quick break and after which we'll talk more about the match itself
2: it's Basler To Bayern Munich! Mario Basler with a little over five minutes
0: gone! Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project,
3: Are you struggling to find something to watch during lockdown? You've drained Netflix,
2: rewatched all your old favourites, and now you need something new? Well, we're here to help! Join us for Clash of the Titles, the podcast where two movies with something in common go head-to-head in a fight to the death! Please, the Kraken! Well, not death. We just decide which one is better. When they do a
4: long shot of the crowd in the ivory tower, it's different to the close-up, and if you look closely you can see E.T., Mickey Mouse, Chewbacca, um, <laughs> no. Ewoks, and
0: C-3PO.
2: So when Wolfgang Peterson went to Spielberg and went,
0: yeah, uh, <laughs> could you maybe um, re-edit uh, my, my movie? Uh, Steven Spielberg went, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm probably going to cut out? E.T., f- mate. I made that. <laughs>
2: Find your new favourite movie or revisit an old classic with me, Alex Zane, Vicky Crompton, and Chris Tilly. New episodes out every Monday and Thursday.
0: Clash of the Titles is a Stakhanov production.
2: It's towards Michael. It's Comfort by York. Cleared. Gigs with a shot. Jerry.
3: Welcome back to the greatest games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. So then, um, it was you know as we've as we've mapped out there, it was it was an incredible. Uh, Campaign from Manchester United, that semi-final and so on and so forth. Bayern themselves had a great comeback, of course, in their semi-final against a brilliant Dynamo Kiev side with Shevchenko and Redbrov. They won 4-3 on aggregate and Kiev, Dynamo Kiev were 3-1 were, were up um, during the first leg and, and Bayern... Kind of clawed it back, and so so you know, you one can't forget how good a Bayern side this was, Jonathan. You know, you had, you've, you've mentioned a, a, a number of them um, of their star players, but going into the final, they were without uh, their forward Elber and Bichente Lizarazu, both out with injuries. So they, you know, we talk about Keane and Skulls missing the final, rightly so, and and uh, I think Henning Berg missed out um, with an injury uh, as well. But Bayern did miss uh, a couple of crucial players too.
4: Yeah, they did, and, and Lizarazu not being there. Uh, I mean, I was going to say it was crucial. I'm not sure it was crucial, but it, it was significant that uh, mm. Michael Turner ended up playing left back. Now, yeah, you know, yeah, I completely agree with with what you what Clive said before that I think Fergie got the selection wrong, mm. and they they end up getting very lucky, and maybe they had credit in the bank, but but Fergie doesn't see it like that at all. You know, you, you read. <laughs> I can't remember which of his many autobiographies this is in. There's one of those where. he, <laughs> where he claims he got it absolutely right, and that he you know he considered playing Giggs in the middle. Uh so you know, so so Keen and Skulls aren't there. Skulls probably wouldn't have played anyway, Butt would probably have played. So he but he ends up playing Beckham in, in the middle alongside Butt, Blumquist on the left, and Giggs on the right. He said he considered playing Giggs through the middle, but he decided to use his pace against Tarnat. And he argues that the raggedness Bayern showed in the last ten minutes were because they've been they'd they exhaust themselves trying to protect Tarnas. Now, that doesn't feel right to me, but that is what Fergie says. And Fergie does seem to know quite a bit about football. Yeah, the the
2: last 25 minutes uh, of the game... I
4: I think it's it's at least an an interesting theory.
2: Giggs played on the left the last 25 minutes. When Sheringham came on, Dwight York kind of dropped behind Sheringham and Cole and Giggs went back to the left. Beckham, they played 4-3-3 really for the last... Well, until Solskjaer came on. Um, But... um, uh, I, I, I don't think Giggs had much of an impact on the game until he was switched to the left hand side in, in the closing stages. Um, so I, 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 it was a, it was a tough one. I think they played, they played a league game, uh, I think against Blackburn a couple of weeks before, and Scholes and Keane didn't play for some reason in that game, and he played Phil Neville as a holding uh, midfield player, and there was, uh, there, there was even a theory that he might he might play Phil Neville in there somehow. And uh, uh, I don't know what else he would have done. I suppose he would have played instead of Blomqvist. But um, uh, no, I, I, I don't think that, that I mean, I, I've made a note here. I, I, I always sort of watch back the games. It's the only way you learn. And as I, as I do that, I, I make a log, you know, so that for future reference. And first, my, at halftime, I put uh, Manchester United, no chances, no fluency, uneasy in defence. Um, yeah. they didn't create a chance until the Blanquist had a chance in the 56th minute, mm. it was the first threat mm. that they put on the Bayern Munich goal, so if you think that, I'm sorry that I can actually quote these numbers, but it was in the 67th minute that Sheringham replaced Blomkvist, so they'd had one chance in the first three quarters of the game, the way he set the team up for that, you know, for the start of the match
4: Yeah, I mean there's it's, it's, um so one of the – I mean, this is sort of a, an academic thing about football journalism, but obviously, you know, in an, an evening game, you, you're, you're having to write as the game's going on. And w- one thing Fergie would would say repeatedly in press conferences when he was having a go at journalists was, I've seen the first editions from Barcelona. I've seen what he <laughs> wrote. And, of course, what people wrote was United have frozen on a big occasion. Fergie's got it wrong tactically. They've been outplayed by Bayern and then, you know, people hastily having to add a top and a tail to it saying, but actually despite all that, Bayern won. Then by the second and third editions, the pieces are much more sort of refined and much more honed. And they, they present this beautiful narrative of of more late drama, United, the team that never gives up. You know, Fergie's famous uh half time team talk when he, you know, he he says you'll be six feet from the cup, make sure that you you know you you don't have any regret mm-hmm. tonight that that's as close as you've ever got. But actually, the first edition pieces were truer. The first edition yeah. pieces were correct. They were, you know, mm. very, very disappointing for three quarters of a game.
3: Well, as, as we were talking about earlier with, with this game, I mean, I, I can remember watching it and I was a neutral, uh, but I was supporting Manchester United, the English side. And, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay, what, what, what's going what's gonna to happen? And Mario Basler scores after six minutes. And it's like, oh, that's quite strange. And I don't want to sort of jump ahead, you know, we'll talk about other bits and pieces, but you're right. I, I, really after that goal, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, Manchester United are going to mess this up. This is, this is not happening because you're right, Clive, there was no fluency. They looked disjointed. They looked out of sorts. Well, it was and, the nature of the goal as well, well, wasn't it? I mean, the, yeah, the goal was. was sort of a nothing goal.
2: Oh, tell me about Soft. it. Tell me about it. I, I mean, this was, you know, my opportunity Um, Obviously, I'd actually commentated on the Champions League final the previous year uh, because Brian Moore had decided to take that night off in his preparations for the World Cup finals. Um, So it wasn't, strictly speaking, my first live Champions League final, but uh, clearly the audience was three times the size uh, for this game. And throughout the first half, I had this nagging voice in the back of my mind saying... Your first Champions League final, it's going to end 1-0 and you've got the goal wrong. Because (laughs) uh, for for whatever anybody ever says about any aspect of my commentary that night, I say something like Basler deflected and in. And such was my faith in Peter Schmeichel that I just assumed that he must have been beaten by a wicked deflection. And then, of course, the replay comes up. And I look as stupid as, <laughs> frankly, Peter did uh, because yes, it just I, went straight in. And as you say, it's a totally nothing goal.
3: I think, Clive, when you say, you know, deflected and in, I think everyone was thinking that because I remember thinking, well, that, that can't have it just gone Doesn't make me feel any better that you've
2: got it wrong too, Marcus, <laughs> by the way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it's about time I admit it, Clive, and this is what we're doing. <laughs> but um, but it, it's true, it was, it was a very strange goal because it just flew past Michael. I don't think it was a free but kick he, either.
2: Um, Big Yankee was yep. bursting down the centre and Janssen went shoulder to shoulder with him. Um, so hmm. I don't think it was a free kick in the first, but, but nothing happened in the first half. Really nothing happened oh. apart oh. from that.
3: And into the second half, Jonathan, we see uh, people thinking, "Okay, there's going to be a reaction here from Manchester United," but, but there wasn't hugely. They still looked a bit out of sorts. And as Clive mentioned earlier, Blomquist had a, a little bit of a chance, he was at full stretch, and it was yeah, you know, stretching really onto that Giggs cross and put it over. Mm. But
4: no, I mean, Bayern had the chances. You know, there was the, oh my goodness, yeah, there was the the Yanker knocked down to Effenberg, that Schmeichel tipped over. There was mm-hmm. then there was the you know the the, the first of the two. Um, Two occasions when the woodwork was hit. The Scholl's little chip over Schmeichel. Oh,
3: great! Effort.
4: And yeah, Schmeichel has since said that you know he, he knew he was beaten, and he all, he all he can do is watch. And then he mm. finds the ball bouncing back into his arm; doesn't have to move. And he, he, he says that he knew then that they were going to win it. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot that happened between that and, and them lifting it. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I can see how. I guess in that moment when the ball goes over his head, he thinks it's done. And then because Charles hit it right-footed, it just drifts a, a mm-hmm. fraction. And, and so rather than hitting the post and going in, it hits the post and bounces straight back. But, I mean, that is, what, half an inch from, from going in.
2: That's the 79th minute. And then Janka's overhead kick, which hit the crossbar oh. full on. I mean, it wasn't a missed kick. He actually caught it quite well. It was the 84th minute. So... You know, there are two opportunities for Bayern to go two or three nil up in the 79th and 84th minute, and Manchester United still haven't really laid a glove on Bayern. But as soon as Solskjaer came into the game, he forced a save with his first touch, which was a really sharp header. And for the next two or three minutes, you know, talking now 86, 87, 88, Manchester United started to create chances. And, and, And so that that little bit of anticipation, and you never know. In in my voice, in in Ron Atkinson's voice, sitting alongside me, was was not without foundation. And maybe then Peter Schmeichel might have started to think we've got a chance here. But I mean, four or five minutes earlier, there was no sign of it.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. those two chances, aren't there? There's the uh, the to showing the and It's a little bit yeah. behind him, so him sort of dra- you know drags the shot, and and Khan makes a save. And then there's actually a really nice move that York ends up skewing. And that's when Ron Atkinson says, you know what, if equalised, I think they're going to go on and win it.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, Nicky Butt got in uh, round the back and and fired the ball across the face of the goal. Nobody got on the end of it, but it was they'd suddenly started to create opportunities. Solskjaer came on for Andy Cole in the 81st minute, I mean, Sheringham had been on for, you know, Sheringham in, in the end, finished up spending 20, 25, 26, six, seven minutes on the field. But Solskjaer literally just had that 10, 11 minutes on, on the field. And, you know, let's not forget he won the corner for, um, you know, for the second goal. So his impact... He, he deserves to be remembered as 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 the match winner because his presence did change things. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the the impact of these late goals on Manchester United opponents. I think, for all their arrogance and for all their confidence, Oli Solskjaer just had that, you know, that that mm. X factor about him, particularly from the bench, and and I, that must have figured in Bayern Munich team talks in in the build up to the game. You know, this, this card that they play in the closing stages when things are not going well. Yeah. And this extraordinary substitute who studies the game during the game so that he can make an impact when he comes on. And I'm sure we'll talk about the two finishes in a moment, but they are two extraordinarily well-taken goals. Yeah. yeah. It's and one thing I'm wondering about. It.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, it's very difficult to tell even watching extended highlights or actually even if you watch the, the footage of the 90 minutes. But taking Mateus off, I know he was old by then, but did he look tired or, or, or do you think that was a mistake to take him off? Because he went off after, what, 82 minutes? Yeah, he played... Do you, you think Bayern lost the leader by doing this? He was, he
2: was 38 years of age, coming up 39. Um, and, um, it, it, you know, he was, he was... Basically, it was his, his lap of honour. Uh, he played as a sweeper that night, but burst, burst forward. It kind of played like with a back three, but he was constantly getting forward. I, I, you know, I, I listen. How many times have we seen a manager substitute his oldest player in the closing stages? I mean, uh, you know, he he brought on uh, Fink, who was a reliable sort of centre back, stroke midfield play. He, he, uh, yeah, I mean, if you don't shore the game up in those circumstances as a manager, you get it criticised forever and a day. And you know, the changes that uh, Hitzfeld made that night were essentially just to see the game out. So. I, uh, I mean, it, it's easy with the benefit of hindsight, as we've
3: just said. But did you think, Clive, though, that when he made those changes? You know, we spoke about buying, have, buy and having those chances, and they still had a, a couple of chances, sort of late on, as, as you mentioned. It, often, you you have a side who are ahead, and they get to a point, and they might have a, a, a few openings, and if they don't take them, they go, mm, okay, yeah, now it's time to retreat. Now it's time to just kind of see this out, because I mean. Bayern should have won that game. The, the chances they had and the time and space they had in the final third in the kind of last, I don't know, 20 minutes or whatever of that game of Manchester United putting forward is, is extraordinary. So it was probably just the time where... Hitzfeld thought, OK, fine, let's just see this over the line. The fans are singing, the flares are going off, you know, we're having a good time and we should be OK. Yeah, they were never dominant. It was never,
2: uh, a, I mean, they, you know, the other probably most famous Champions League final I've covered was the 05 final. Milan were totally dominant in that game. Liverpool, Liverpool played far better two years later and lost. Um, so, I mean, that is an extraordinary Turnaround in mm-hmm. three goals in wherever it was six and a half minutes, and even th- after that, Milan continued to dominate. <laughs> Bayern Munich were not dominant in the game, but they were on top. Um, they were in front, and then they had these two opportunities to score. One, which as described, was a, a brilliant piece of play by Scholl. It was barely a chance, and even the Yanker chance—he's got his back to goal, and he executes a pretty good overhead kick and strikes the crossbar, but. You know, let's go back to the positive side rather than the negative side. Manchester United woke up somewhere around about the 83rd, 84th minute. Whatever it was, whether it was the last, you know, the the proverbial last throw of the dice, whether it was Solskjaer, whether it was that that words that Ferguson had spoken at half-time about this being, you know, probably the only chance in their lives they'll get to complete this particular feat. Uh, They found something. And um, Mm. the more they found, the less Bayern could find. And that, and Ron was right. uh, You know, if they equalise here, they'll go on and win it. And I think they would have won it in extra time if they hadn't won it as dramatically as they did with a second goal.
3: Yeah, I mean, Clive, for me, the moment when I thought they're going to score was actually just before they did because the openings Manchester United were creating weren't that open, if you see what I mean. The chances weren't that clear cut. And I know Ron Atkinson, who Jonathan mentioned, said what he said. But to me, I thought, no, I think this is just this is just going to peter out, and they're going to miss out. However, to quote your good self back to you, as, as you'll know the line, of course, you said it for crying out loud. You know, Manchester United to the words of the effect of Manchester United are going to score. Are I said, they going can to score they
2: score? They always score. That's right. Yeah, that's
3: the one. That's the one. And, and when you said that, I thought. They do always score, don't they? And of course, yeah. Jonathan, it proved to be.
2: <laughs> it wasn't factually true, but uh, it, it actually came from Mark Lawrenson. <laughs> um, I was driving to Wembley on the Friday before the FA Cup final, listening to Radio 5 Live, or maybe Radio 2 as it might have been then. Uh, Mark Lawrence was doing a preview of Manchester United versus Newcastle United in the, in the, the FA Cup final. And he said something. He said something to the feds. He said, "Well, we know it won't be Manchester United nil." And he was asked for a prediction, and I, I suppose that kind of stuck in my mind and stuck in. It was what we all thought at the time that, um, as in Turin, as in wherever you know, that as against Arsenal at Villa Park, that we know they'll score. They might concede two or three, but we know they'll score, and um, mm. it was. A, a little bit of building pressure and I suppose what I was saying in in my own way is we expected a goal from Manchester United at very least tonight. Where is it? Maybe this is it. Yeah. And it comes and, of course
4: from a, a half clear it's a cut of a corner, then Fink has a chance to clear it. Yeah. And it sort of scuffs or stabs a clearance and it yeah you know, ends up with gigs. And I don't I don't know, it just sort of it sort of feels fitting that the man who came on for Mateo should be the one to have to, mistake. <laughs> the one who had the opportunity to clear it and didn't.
2: Well, Schmeichel yeah. certainly had an impact in the penalty area. The, the, the corner kind of went towards him and his sheer physical presence and the surprise of seeing a green jersey rather than a red jersey, which must be. I, I, I mean, we're, I, I, I'm not sure I've ever played in a football match where a goalkeeper's come forward, for, but it, it, it must be slightly. Um, destabilising but the the fine, one of the finest pieces of football analysis I've ever heard f- was from a man who knew the goal scorer so well Terry Venables was in our studio that evening yeah. and he said he sighed on he sighed on he said every other forward in the world when the ball went out back to the edge of the penalty area would have turned to face it and if the ball had come into Sheringham with his back to goal he yeah, could man. not have scored but okay, he scuffs it a little bit, but the fact is, the fact is that he's kept his position in a goal-scoring position. He's kept side-on, so that when Giggs's miss-hit comes to him, all he's got to do is help it on its way, and he, he just sort of wafts the ball into the into the corner of the net. But his body shape and Terry was spot-on, is is brilliant. You know, that that is intuitive, instinctive goal, you know, goal-taking.
3: I thought it was going to be a given offside when I first saw it. There was, a, you know, one of those. And I think Sheringham himself looks round at the linesman for a moment to make sure he, he was indeed onside. And yeah, that go that goal goes in, and suddenly it's like everything changes. Everything changes, as you say. Everyone's thinking. They're going to go on and win it now in extra time. Brilliant! We've got another half an hour. We've got Man- this, the Manchester United side that we've enjoyed in previous rounds. They're back, and 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 we can go and do that. And then uh, <laughs> a couple of minutes later, same situation, same scenario, um, and and Beckham delivers the corner, and Schalchare has done it. Yeah, so. and
2: the other, and you know, the other component in the goal. I mean, they're almost. Uh, you know, who who would you choose to take a corner in those circumstances of anybody in the world? Probably David Beckham. Who would you most want on the near post trying to flick it on? <laughs> or probably anybody in the whole world? Probably Teddy Sheringham. And then when the chance comes at waist height across your body with two on the line and you've somehow got to try and get a bit of elevation, there isn't a great deal of gold for, for Oli to aim at. And the mm-hmm. angle of his foot and his body, okay. Again, hindsight, and we're watching it back, but it is just the most impeccable finish from a cool head at a, at, at panic time. Absolutely, you know. Sammy Kufour, thirty seconds later, is uh-huh. still lying on the floor. And but it, you know, talk about the. I I don't like words like assassin and ruthless and striking because that you know I think that's a, a little bit fanciful. But cold headed efficiency in that at that moment of of high emotion and drama, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, sharp brilliant brilliant goal
4: and what, um, what I love about it as well when you when you watch it back is the expression on his face you yeah. know, his, his eyes are so wide he as if he can't <laughs> quite believe he obviously can believe the finish, but as if he's you know he, he he executes the finish and then it's sort of this this dawning realization of what he's done, and this look of you know gleeful shock on his face that that is almost as sort of affecting as Kufu beating the ground and yeah. you know, the, the, the horror on Khan's face and it's it's just you know the the, the, the most joyful and surprised expression I think I've ever seen on any any footballer
3: mm. Uh, Jonathan, do, have you seen a team so distraught and in such despair as as Bayern were when that second goal went in?
4: No, 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 I've never seen anything like that. And, and yeah. um, later that year, I think probably, probably the September, uh, I was I was in I was in the US, and I, I, I went I, I saw Mateus play for what was then New New York New Jersey Metro Stars. Right. And Mateus was incredibly grumpy throughout. He clearly wasn't enjoying himself, and he spent about five minutes in the second half just berating a linesman while the game was going on. <laughs> and you know, this, this, this being the US, you can go in the in the locker room afterwards, which is a very odd yeah. experience. certainly when you're not used to it. And this this was sort of one of the very first bits of journalism I'd done. And there was an American journalist said to Mateus, "Was that the most upset you've ever been in a game?" And I thinking... <laughs> If three months ago he walked off the pitch in Barcelona <laughs> thinking he's completed the full set of every single trophy you can win. The Bundesliga, Serie A, uh, the UEFA Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup, the World Cup, the European Championship, and now finally he's out of the Champions League and he sees in 10 minutes this collapse. And <laughs> here's an American journalist asking him if an outsider against him is the most upset he's ever been. And Mateus just just looked at him, turned around, and walked off into the shower. And I thought, yeah, just sort of a magnificent, a more, a more eloquent response than he could possibly come up with in words. I don't think it was disappointment uh, so much as sh- shock. The the
2: the the expressions on the faces of the of the fans behind the goal was, and again, I'd be careful with the analogy, is it, as if they'd witnessed some ter- horrific road accident. It it really it it was. Shock and horror. Um, I, I, it wasn't kind of that <laughs> shake of the head. It, it was the wide eyes. It was the same eyes that that Solskjaer had had seconds earlier. They quite literally. I mean, sometimes uh, you know, football commentators uh, uh, get mullered for using cliches, and so, but it's actually, sometimes the most obvious phrase, and they couldn't believe their eyes. They really could. uh, This is Bayern Munich. You know, this doesn't happen to us, and not in not in this way. If somebody comes and outplays us, or Juve outthinks us, or we get kicked off the field, but this doesn't happen to us. We don't allow a game to slip through our, our and right in front of the Bayern fans, of course, at their end of the field. Um it, it was just, and I think that was one of the reasons that a lot of English football fans forgave Manchester United for one night only because of who they'd beaten.
3: Oh, Clive, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this game. Um, yeah, one of the most incredible finishes to a match I think anyone's ever seen, uh, of course. And marvellous to talk about it with yourself, who, of course, was there in the, in the famous New Camp Stadium to witness and commentate on it. So, yeah, an absolute pleasure, Clive. Thank you very much for that.
2: And I kept my job. <laughs> and you've, you've still got you've it. Still
3: got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there we are, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much uh, for listening to uh, the Greats Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Um, but there we are. So, thanks again, Clive. Thanks, Jonathan. We'll see you next time. Stay safe. Beckham
2: into Sheringham. And am so sorry. more
0: dramatically than this this was a stakano production
1: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well